Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Why isn't this a CE? CE by podcast. Mind blowing. People don't even know people like her exist. Renegades. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Somebody found you. Thank God they found you. Shining a light on those people. And by the way, you're going to be inspired. You can't contain this, Sybil. You can't contain it. Nurses know how to solve shit. Nailed it. Renegades. Welcome to the Renegade Podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Jim Varani, Uncle Jimmy. (laughs) If I read through this man's entire bio, Uh, that would be the length of the podcast. What he's done with his career is pretty epic. But here's the nitty gritty. He received his undergraduate degree from St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, and his PhD at the University of North Dakota in 1974. After postdoctoral work at the University of Connecticut, he came to the University of Michigan, go blue, my alma mater, as an assistant professor in 1980 promoted to associate professor in 1985 and became a full professor in 1991. Currently, he serves as a professor emeritus at the University of Michigan and remains to this day a self-proclaimed lab rat. This podcast with this man is amazing. You will learn not only so much about science, but the state of the world and science in general. And he is just a delight. (laughs) You just want to hug him through the audio, if that's possible. So I know you all will enjoy Uncle Jimmy. And don't forget, if you're a nurse and want to see E for listening to this, you can head over to rnegade.pro. That's r-n-e-g-a-d-e.pro. Sign up and get some CEs in a fun way. Enjoy Uncle Jimmy. Welcome to the Renegade podcast. Today on the podcast, we have my uncle, actually. Uncle, well, I call you Uncle Jimmy, but you are Dr. James Varani. By, by professional title, and we are super excited to chat with you today. There's a lot to talk about. Oh. Uh, thank you, and uh, I have gone by Uncle Jimmy as much as Dr. James Barani, I can assure you of that. In the science business, it's all very informal. In the Is medical it? business, it might not be, but in the science business, it's very informal. So... Whatever you call me, that's happy to answer to. Okay. I don't think I've ever called you Dr. Varani, but... And, and and you shouldn't. No. I can call you Uncle Doctor. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Dr. J. You know, what was super exciting about, for me, to have you on this podcast was, you know, I mean, you've been in my mind, relatively close uncle, but I really don't know much about the span of your career. And you did actually write about, you know, maybe some, maybe this could be a part of the podcast is how you got 
your path, how you got to do what you did for so long. And I am dying to know about it, actually. Well, that we don't want to spend all day talking about that because I'm sure there are other things. But I think it's uh, in the illustrative uh, presentation because the one thing that I will say is I never had a plan. Uh, science was not something I was really interested in as a kid. You know, you always hear these stories about the kids that had their chemistry set when they were 10 and blew up the house when they were 12. And uh, I, I never had a path. I didn't even have a path towards medicine. But Andre, your other uncle, Bill, right. he went into medicine. And when I was ready for college, he was already in medical school and I didn't even want to go to college. And I thought that I would go in the army because that's where all my friends were. And my dad, thank God, said, no, you aren't. You're going to college. And I didn't have the ability to say no. So anyway, <laughs> went to college, had no aspirations uh, when I got to college and little more when I left. But I knew I had to do something because... If I didn't, I was going to end up coming home to this little town in the middle of nowhere that I know Andre has been to. Uh, where, where is it? Northern Minnesota. Grand Rapids. Uh, and there's nothing to do there except work in the iron mines, the paper mill, or the railroad. Huh. And having done those jobs as a high schooler, I knew I didn't want to do that. And so... Of all the things that I wanted to do, uh, medicine was highest on the list. And so I applied. I got accepted at the University of Minnesota and became, according to some of my friends, the first person in the world ever to turn down medical school once you got accepted. <laughs> but I didn't really want to be a doctor. And I didn't realize that until after I'd been accepted. And then, well, what should I do? And the career in science sounded good because the school that I'd gone to undergraduate uh, in was a small liberal arts college, and it didn't have research lab. In those days, back in the 70s, if you went to a liberal arts school, you did not have uh, much opportunity to do research. But we had a program with the University of Minnesota. And so I spent one summer in a pharmacology and uh, this is where I asked Andre if I could talk about the role of marijuana in my career path. Yes, please. Uh, Absolutely. So I worked in a pharmacology lab when the technology called HPLC was just coming into vogue. And that's high-pressure liquid chromatography where you can separate metabolites. And the lab I got assigned to was doing... Uh, marijuana research and we were separating the active ingredients in marijuana and we'd start the experiment at eight in the morning inoculate a whole bunch of rats with their dose of marijuana <laughs> and then at two in the afternoon we drop blood and start the analysis which went on all night because each run was about 45 minutes so a single data point but in wow. between in between the morning and the afternoon, there was nothing to do. 
And the lab had some of the best marijuana the police had confiscated. And so we'd get some dope and go and sit on the banks of the Mississippi River, which was right next to the lab, lock out the door, sit on the banks, smoke a little grass, and let the morning go by. And one moment, I woke up and said, I can do this job. <laughs> this job isn't so hard. This is like working in a candy store. <laughs> it is. So, oh, you know. Stone uncle. <laughs> when I finished graduate, when I finished undergraduate, I had already taken my application to medical school and formally resigned. And uh, Andre, your grandfather was furious. <laughs> I can imagine. He was absolutely livid, you know, and I'm okay. And it was it was years before he came to realize that I quote landed on my feet. Wasn't that he wanted me to be a doctor. He thought I was just throwing away the golden opportunity that I had to go and do a career that has no beginning and no end and no definition. But here I am. I think it worked out. I, I've enjoyed the, the, the time, but I want to say one more thing. You I, say as I, many things as you want. Oh, well, I'm, I'm riveted. <laughs> you tell me when it's time to stop and get on to something else. I, I started graduate school in 1970, and I became a professor emeritus in 2020. So I had exactly 50 years from start to finish in my, I'm still working, by the way. I, I haven't retired. Uh, 50 years in the lab, right? 50 years in the lab and, well, 52 now, but 50 years from the day I started to the day I formally went from being a professor to a professor emeritus. And I have called that the golden age of science. But unfortunately, the next 50 years aren't going to be nearly as good for science, at least not in our society. And I do think that the medical practice that nurses are involved in and the whole medical field does, in fact, depend on science. Yeah. And if, if we've lost or if we are losing the, the ability to do science as we did it over this period that I was just fortunate to be part of, I mean, it had nothing to do. The golden age, I probably added maybe one grain of gold to the thing, but it, it just was a perfect time to be in science. You know, in 1970, we were still recovering from Sputnik. You know, the 60s had been a, a time when we looked and said, oh my God, you know, we've lost a lot of our ends. And so we rebuilt that very quickly. The U.S government decided that we had to gain technological expertise in every field if we wanted to be the country that we always thought we were and to depend on technology. And so really, they put money and, and effort into it right from the early 60s. And by 1970, some of these things were coming to fruition. When I was a graduate student, the term molecular biology had been invented, but we didn't know much about it. Uh, modern genetics was still somewhere off in the future. 
but we were developing technology and we were spending a lot of effort in basic research. And so I just happened to fall into that period where money was available, where science was considered a prestigious uh, endeavor and one that was valued. And so my whole career spanned a 50-year period where what was good for science was very good for me personally. And, yeah. and it was, science was important, but look at it now. And I know we don't want to get into No, we, we, I think this is so important. And if it's okay with you, we can go over our expected time because I think what, what you're uh, hinting at is something that for nurses, for anyone in the medical profession to know about what you were about to say. And because you see it, there's, um, well, to me, and I don't even know what you're about to say, but I, I have an instinct. You see it all over right now, the mistrust and the whatever science is about testing a hypothesis, seeing if it's wrong or right. And, and this is me talking from my own ignorance about it to, to the professor emeritus, right? But it's, this is what I think. Let's test it. Oh, I'm right. Let's see if I'm right again right? Or I'm wrong. Let's change the test. And it continues until you're closer and closer to proving something, which sometimes you never get to proof, but, you know, and there's, it's just become, it seems like it's so political now. And, and the people who need to be, the voices that need to be heard aren't getting heard because they're not kissing the right butts. That's what I'm, Getting the feeling. So I would love for you to tell me why it's no longer the golden age and just go, go as long as you, until you feel like the period is put on the end of the sentence. And then I'm going to take us. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, we'll know, but, and then I'm going to take us back to that time when you were starting this, when molecular biology was just starting to be a thing and, you know, genetic research hadn't even started. I think that's so exciting too. So this might have to be a two-parter, but Andre said that you're up for the challenge. Yeah, I, I, I can, as long as you find this useful, when you say it's time to end, we'll end. But you're absolutely correct, Karen. Uh, it, the people who make decisions and the people who support, who elect the people who make decisions no longer trust science. Uh, we have uh, as much trust in, in some things that are pseudoscience as we do in, in science, but I think the bigger problem is and and I don't know exactly if, how to phrase this, but maybe we oversold a lot of this early on that we could conquer anything with science. And we haven't. And, and, and people legitimately mistrusted this idea that everything would be all right if we just listened to the scientists, just did what was scientifically correct, we would be, we would conquer cancer and, and all of that, uh, and it hasn't come to pass. And people are not trained to understand that science isn't like going to the moon. 
that's technology and that you, that takes science and and applies it just like medicine so you you've got to have the technology if you're going to be in the medical profession but it comes from the science and if you no longer trust the science the technology isn't going to advance whether it's medical science or energy research or environmental or or any of the other things that depend on science. But there's another problem too, a larger problem, or a large problem, I don't know whether it's larger, is in our society, we don't want to pay for it. We, we want to keep taxes low. We want to uh, keep costs of everything down. And the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But the reality is, in the old days, whether it was a Democratic-controlled Congress or a Republican-controlled Congress, the giants of the period after World War II to the mid-70s and even longer, they understood that if we needed to support science, and they were being told by their constituents that we needed to support science, and we don't have that today. So... That's one of the issues. There is the distrust. And third, you got to look around and say, science has done a lot of things incorrect. And we've gone down a lot of poor choices because we made decisions that weren't based on science. And now, if I can digress, yeah. I've always been a devotee of NASA. And I think exploration of the solar system and exploration of the galaxy and exploration even of the universe is inherently valuable because we'll learn things that we didn't even know we were looking at asking questions. But way back when they decided to build the space shuttle, it was because it was to convince people to be interested. They didn't take science as the, the driving force. It was, let's put our money in the space shuttle and people will be interested. And so, just as an example, rather than putting money into exploration, we put it into a technology that we didn't really have a major use for. And so, NASA lost a whole generation of of science or a good part of it. Uh, in medicine, there are analogies. Uh, so we, we, we don't look at things from, okay, where does the science go? We go, where do we want, you know, is it, is it entertainment? Is it, we want support from our constituents. What is it? And so we end up making decisions that aren't really science driven. Can you give an can you give an example of that? Did you well, other than what I was saying about building a space shuttle as opposed to going into uh, uh, putting uh, it into medicine. Now, in medicine, there was back in the seventies a very strong uh, support contingency for AIDS research, which by and large turned out to be a good choice because we learned so much more about the virology of AIDS. 
that we didn't know. And we wouldn't have known if we hadn't been pushed by special interests. Then, when that became successful, a lot of groups in medicine pushed for their own special research. And I'm a man, and you two are women, but I will say it, the breast cancer lobby pressed for money for breast cancer mm-hmm. as opposed to money for cancer. Yeah, so it got it got so specific. Exactly. And it and it was not even the best science because it cut out, you know, a good half of the science where the money could have gone and the research and the money isn't goes directly to the scientists, it goes to the NIH who then set the policy and the priorities, and you can't get a grant if you don't uh, focus on an area of high priority. And that's just one example. And so if you say, where does science lead us? You'd say, what are the basic questions in science? And then you get into genetics and get into molecular biology. And if you take out a disease and say, well, we're going to study this disease because this is a major uh, malady that our people are suffering from, and we can learn enough about one disease, and it will transfer to other diseases, it doesn't work that way. So the best resource should go to the most basic question in science. Now, that's not technology. I'm talking about science. That, makes, that makes so much sense. Uh, Duh. You know? Yep. There's another issue. We used to call science, you know, a pure endeavor, and now it's become corporatized. More and more and more of our research money comes from companies, and they do exactly what's best for their bottom line. I had somebody tell, and I, I, I have to say, and we'll get around to this, I've done a lot of skin diseases, and Skin is a great organ to study, to understand biology. We always look at the societies that fund psoriasis research, atopic dermatitis, and skin cancer. But you know who funds us? The cosmetic firms. You can't get money to support your lab doing psoriasis research or atopic dermatitis, or even skin cancer. There's just not enough money uh, devoted to all the things that we should. But there's enough money devoted to uh, cosmetics, I can guarantee you that. And so the kinds of research, the biology of the skin, it technology includes everything from inflammatory skin disease to wrinkle cream. And the money comes from wrinkle cream. So we use it to study basic biology. And some of it translates into uh, basic science and, and then technology that's beyond uh, wrinkles. But the, the reality is the people who fund us are interested in wrinkle and putting something better on the market. And we turn around. I was going to say, so that just is like such a conflict of interest, and it sort of d- seems like it's dumbed science down. It, it has, it has, but but we're we're mercenary. 
You know, it's it's so difficult to keep a laboratory going and costs keep going up. Oh, that reminds me one other thing that makes it difficult. We'll get to that. Uh, we we're very mercenary, and and our patrons uh, are corporate corporate interests for the large part, larger than it was fifty years fifty years ago. We were we were all funded by the NIH, and even if you had a mediocre grant. You had a chance of getting funded. It would, you know, go through several renditions. Now, the highest quality grants, you know, you've got a hundred of them, and you can only fund four or five. And so, all these good opportunities just never get the chance to get tested. You just reminded me of that, um, of the metaphor, the story metaphor. Uh, I think it's Zen, but it's. Uh, like four blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is. And then one goes up, have you heard this one? And one goes yeah. up to the leg and goes, oh, it's a, it's a tree. And then one goes to the trunk and, you know, the tusk. And they all say it's totally different things when, because they're all looking at the wrinkle cream yeah. and the, you know, the better, safer, plumper lipstick <laughs> or the, you know, whatever, not seeing inflammation of the elephant you know the elephant is and 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 you hit the nail on the head it's chronic inflammation is is the root of all ill the mother of all maladies yeah it's chronic inflammation and diet and lifestyle is the parent of chronic inflammation so hopefully we can get into talk about that one other point though about science we are now so overburdened with regulation that 50 years ago, we didn't even know exist. Some of it, some of it is necessary. Uh, but 50 years ago, we did things without uh, much regulation at all. And we did some pretty dumb things. And we did some pretty uh, unethical things. The way animals What's that? Like getting rats stoned? Yes, or worse. Uh, I am not saying we don't need regulation. In fact, I sit on our Animal Use and Care Committee, and I sit on our IRB, which is the human research, because we absolutely do need to do research ethics. But we. But, what, but, but what's what is it? So, give us an example of what overregulation looks like, like uh, in the lab. Okay. Well, we're doing a clinical trial with ulcerative colitis. Nobody, we spend, the the regulatory people are so concerned about the possibility of private information being released that we spend more time worrying about PHI than we do about the technology that we're applying to a living human being. That's fascinating. And, And it's not just a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's way overburdened, and it and in the animal realm, it it takes you weeks and months to get approval to kill a mouse, and and it's driven up the cost. When I started in research fifty years ago, if I haven't mentioned it, fifty years <laughs> ago, we would buy uh, inbred strains of mice at four dollars a piece. 
These same mice now cost between $60 and $120 a piece. And it's all because of the regulatory burden that breeders have to go follow. And so everything is overregulated. Uh, Jeez, just go to the pet store. The ones I got for my snake for like 90, 99 yeah. cents. <laughs> the, the other thing is, I, I tell people, when there weren't computers, we were always one step ahead of the administrators and the budget people. If you thought you had money coming in, you went and bought something. And by the time you got it in, hopefully you'd had money to pay for it. But now with the computer, if you don't have a short code that's connected to a budget, you try to buy something, it just puts up a red flag. You can't buy this. It's not approved. You don't have the money, whatever. So every time we want to do something, we, we have to make sure ahead of time that all the red flags aren't going to come up. How does any one of them will done? stop? What's that? I said, how does anything ever get done? That must be so frustrating as a scientist. It is so. It is frustrating, and it also kills your creativity and your intuition because it, it, it can. Because I mean, well, you can't, you can't do things in the moment. Like oh, I know, maybe we could go in this direction, exactly. and then that, but that direction is so delayed, and then the exactly. You, you that's exactly right. Uh, you 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 can't do, live in the moment because of that. You have basically, and then they come back and say, "Well, you didn't spend the budget on what you said you were going to spend." And I said, "No, because if I had said what I'm going to spend the budget on, I wouldn't have had the, the data to get the grant to do what I said I was going to." So I'm taking the money from my grant and working on my next project, or you know, working on the evolution of the project because if I only wanted to spend the money on what I said in the grant, I would have never gotten the grant because I wouldn't have had the preliminary data to test it. So that's so I see oh so I under sorry. So I understand all the things well, three of the things that you talked about that are are killing the golden age. <laughs> um what do you it more difficult. I won't say it's killing, but certainly so could it Likes after Sputnik, could it turn around in a day? Mm, good question. Uh, it, under the right circumstances and the right people, what do you? Is there anything that you see? Maybe it's a miracle, but it's possible yeah. that if this happened, it would turn around. What if? What if you know we had a, a a version of COVID that was you know suddenly much much worse? Or what if global warming would? Oh, you bite your tongue. <laughs> But okay, yeah, but I see what you mean. It would be necessary. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, our society's changed. You know, we, we, we don't value something that's going to take 10 years and maybe produce nothing. You know, we want something instantaneously uh, on our shelf if that's what it's to buy. When we, when we, we do things, we're, we're not, we have, we've lost some of this long term, slow progress. I used to think, you know, you went into the lab and you had a eureka moment. Ah, I just discovered the cure for cancer. You know, it doesn't work that way. It's just a slow road to anything. Antra, your cousin, my son, he looked at me once and said, I don't want to do what you're doing. It's too slow. Yeah. So he's an investment bank. 
You know, I mean, he wants to do it overnight or in an instant. Yeah. And and he's not alone. So those are all the things that are making it hard on, on science. And maybe to wrap this up for at least for a while, or we can talk more if we want, but to say that as science goes, so will technology. We won't be developing the technology in the 50 years from now if we don't have the science that underlies that technology. And the practice of medicine is technology. I mean, it's it's not all technology. I mean, it's people like you guys that, you know, intuition and, and your hunch and, and, and dealing with a real human being. I'm not saying it's all technology. But but medicine is technology, and technology grows out of science. Well, yeah, you have to have technology to be able to do something with your hunch and your intuition. Exactly. I mean, you need the tools. Exactly. But it's interesting what, what you're saying, because you listen to, oh, who's a futurist, Sam something. There's a couple of futurists that I've listened to recently, read their books or listened to podcasts that they're on, and they, they're saying that, you know, uh, by the year 2030, people are going to be living to 150. You know, well, I mean, they talk a lot about advances in technology and anti-aging and science. But from what you're saying, that that train is slowing down <laughs> significantly. Yeah, but maybe you won't be 50. Maybe for the next 50 years, we'll still be living on, on the, the, the progress we've made. And I'm not saying we're not going to continue to make progress. Don't get me wrong. I would not recommend somebody who is interested in science not going into science. All I'm trying to do is say we have had a golden age of, of, of science that the trends are not as positive. But, you know, if, if one of my nephews or nieces wanted to come and work in the lab, and some have, I'm more than happy to have them come. And, and you know, if they got an interest in science, it's a great career for some people. And I'm not trying to say it, it's not good. I'm just saying some of the trends that we see in society, you can go into any other, doesn't have to be science, and, and see that society's goals and, and aspirations and the way we work is different. Mm -hmm. it, you know, and that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I guess there's also the rest of the world who are going through moments of advancement and regression and, you know, like ours might be experiencing yeah. a slowdown, but there's other places in the world. And as we all communicate more and more and more and become more intertwined, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's another good point. Science used to be, we called it always open. I could call anyone in the world. And ask them a question, and if I could call anyone in corporate America and ask for a reagent, if I thought I could make hay out of it. Now we're much more secretive. You know, we have to sign part of our non-disclosure that we're not working for any foreign governments. Isn't that fascinating? You know, they treat us like like yeah. we're guilty. I can't you know? even. I, it's so interesting that we have this global ability to talk to anybody and all of these great minds in you know all over the world, and now you can't even. You have to sign a, a 
piece of paper that say that, that's just like again it's just to, to me another example of how science is is not is is being dumbed down yeah being being held back held back yeah yeah, yeah no we used to call companies if they published a paper on a reagent say you know i got an idea if i do if i find something you'll be the first to know and we'll share it. or mm. it'll be here that you're a reagent now there's what they call you know a, a disclosure that you have to do a material transfer agreement it can take months because it's got to go through all the bureaucracy okay I've had enough of that. We could get back. <laughs> I, I want to hear about the stuff that surprised and delighted you. I was just going to say, so as a scientist, <laughs> when, you were, when you're in the lab, what's the, that's exactly what I was Well, that, that's a good question, Andrea. The thing that I know science delights me is because when I'm not in the lab, that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> when I'm at home and... You, I want to put on a football game. I know I go out and I read a paper, you know, because it's something that I, I'm working on. I would rather be in front of my computer, you know, scroll. And that's one good thing. I mean, the literature is right at your fingertips. All the information you need. Yeah. That's, that certainly is positive. So we didn't talk about all the positive trends. But I know science for me was a good career. Because there's no other thing that I would rather be thinking about in my free time than something that I'm working on in the lab. And I've had the opportunity to work on some very interesting projects. And they have always went down paths that I never anticipated. That probably is more of an interest than... Uh, anything else that I'm working on something and then six months from now I'm working on something that if you told someone they say it was different and I say no there's a direct connection I've gone from A to B to C to D to E here's E there's A and I didn't go from A to Z I went from A to B and that went to C and no one could have predicted where that would have gone but it did. So to me, that's the most, well, I had a mentor who was one of the giants of science. And he said, and he was a big football fan too. So it was a competition. Yeah. A big he, what? A big football fan? He was a football fan. Oh, okay. What was his name? Is he, your, is he your mentor at the University of Michigan? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she but, went to school there too. Karen did. You, oh, that's right. You were... You go blue. Were, yeah. Well, they're going blue now. No, finally. <laughs> finally. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. Uh, <laughs> the thrill of discovery. You know, when you when you have that moment, when you've gone. Oh, I think we lost that. When you've gone days or weeks or months without anything and you're so getting so down because nothing is working. You know, you're not making progress. And all of a sudden, you make a discovery that opens up new possibilities. That's called the thrill of discovery. That is the driving force for science. And believe me, it is like a high. 
It is, it is like a drug when you do that. And you need it because science is not like a lot of professions where you, or like medicine. You know, every day you saw 10 patients and you help six of them. I don't know. Uh, but each day you know you made progress. You did something of value. I come home at night and would go weeks and sometimes months and say, Barb, the only good thing I can say about today is I got paid. Because I didn't do anything. Oh, it was the, and everything worked bad. It was the famous, I don't know how I'm getting paid for this, but I look out at my office and I see if someone's coming and nobody comes and I still get a paycheck. Yeah. That. <laughs> That's exactly right. So went went <laughs> nothing and went down the route one year. I spent one year on a on a on a project that ultimately ended up in the pile of trivia because up front I'd been given information by a colleague who told me this couldn't fail and he had misread his own data and so he was smart enough to realize he wasn't going to go down that path but I could see glory I could see fame and glory and Nobel prizes and all that so I took his idea and did followed it for maybe nine months did a lot of experiments, wasted a lot of money off grants that were, you know, funded to do other things. And then did the critical experiment, and it turned out to be trivia. What was it? Uh, he had discovered a pathway that if you blocked it, would block chronic inflammation. And he told me that here is the intermediate that's blocked by this reagent. And he not only didn't know the, the, the correct pathway, but he had misread his own data. So that wasn't even the intermediate that he was blocking. So he had made a legitimate mistake. But, you know, he had told me in all of his excitement. And, oh, I said, yeah, I know how that could fit into my own work. And I got interested. And I went down this path and, after nine months or whatever, I knew it was trivial. And I had to do the critical experiment, but I was already doubting. And I knew, oh, God, when this goes down, I'm going to be so depressed. Oh. The experiment, knowing, and dear God, don't let it be like, I know it's going to be. And it was. And there was no, then after that, you know, it's like bad money after good. <laughs> this is a dead issue. This is a dead experiment. This is a whole project based on smoke and mirrors and I fell into the trap. So I would then I started but I have other things in the lab that are working. Yeah, so, I want to hear some of the discoveries that, you know, delighted you and that that you, you know Yeah, was was there like in another like was there anything that you worked on or discovered that was maybe a little faster? I mean, just like something that made you think, well even if it took a while, but made you think, oh this changes everything. Was there um, you know, I, I, I'm going to disappoint you, but I don't think I've ever made a discovery that changed everything. I've taken an idea, like for I'm example, not disappointed. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's talk about my favorite tissue, the colon and the liver. Which the colon? I learned everything I know about the colon because I studied the skin for so long. And I tell people, 
oh, now we're not really working in, in skin right now. We're doing most of our work in the cold. See, that just got me excited for some reason. <laughs> I say, no, it's not. The colon and the skin are identical, except that the colon faces the liquid interface and the skin faces the dry interface. But the tissues are identical, except for how they've evolved to meet their uh, respective environments. The skin dries out. It has to, you know, we call it keratinized. It has to get thick and tough because it's going to get dry. It's going to face UV light. And the GI tract, it's just the liquid that kind of flows through it and bathes it. So it never doesn't have to be as tough. But you have your epithelium, you have your basic membrane, and you have your stone. So they're the same. What we learned in the skin was about making a barrier. And we made the barrier better because it was what we were trying to do to reduce inflammation. And we said, well, the other thing that makes the skin and the colon similar is if you have most of your internal organs, you can't treat them like you can the skin because you can't get anything to them. You can't just rub a lotion onto your liver or your pancreas. But you can take a, a, a pill that's enterically coated and you can get it right to the colon. So we said, we know how to improve the barrier in the skin. Would it work in the cold? And so we did some experiments. First, we did them in, in what we call organ culture. Then we did them in animals. And now we're doing them in, in humans. And they were improving the barrier. And you say, well, so what? Who cares if you're improving the barrier? But chronic inflammation is driven by a bad barrier in the gut. Because if you have a, in the, in the lay press, they call it leaky gut. But really, there is, you know, a number, probably 10 major components that make the, the epithelial cells seal in your, in your gut. And bacteria, and food allergens and the toxins and all the nasty stuff that go through the GI tract doesn't end up inside the tissue because you've got a good barrier. When you don't have that good barrier and the bacteria and the bacterial products get into the interstitium, that triggers the inflammatory. So then the inflammatory comes in and if it gets continuous, it becomes more systemic. It invades the liver. It attacks the blood vessels. It attacks the nervous system. Uh, and so I really believe that the major cause of what we call the chronic long latency diseases is, is uh, Poor barrier in the gut leading to the chronic inflammation that then just spreads throughout the body. And so we spend billions developing better anti-inflammatories. And patients pay billions. I mean, look at the cost. If you have to take a biological, you know, like uh, uh, for ulcerative colitis. 
So what, what, our, were you, what were you giving what, in your experiments? What was the enterocodic pill you were giving? It's multi-mineral salt because differentiation of epithelium depends on a balance of calcium, magnesium, and several other minerals. So it's, it's almost trivial in cost. And uh, in terms of uh, sophistication, it, it, you know, it's, it's almost trivial there too. But if you could get the right mineral balance into the colon, the colon tissue will do the rest to make the epithelium will go under a better differentiation program then it will seal better and then you won't have your leaky gut and we chose ulcerative colitis as our target but now i'm thinking we should have chosen uh an irritable bowel syndrome so we're just now curving back to saying let's recruit a, a cohort of subjects with irritable bowel syndrome because uh it may be different in some respects, but it's how, probably due to barrier there as well. And so, how, how did you know though that it was this this combination of minerals? How did you? Know because we did that? it. In, we did it in in colon epithelial cells and culture. But how did you know to even use that? I mean, there's probably because we knew that that was how you differentiate epithelial cells. That had been in the literature for fifty years in the skin, and only in the skin. Oh, that's amazing. And we were trying to understand retinoids, which so we could make better wrinkle cream. But now we had to block this dang process. <laughs> so in the skin, <laughs> we didn't we didn't want we weren't trying to drive differentiation. We we're trying to interfere with it mm -hmm. so that things could get through the skin and into the place where they make the collagen and make better skin. See, so, that's what makes science so exciting. Like to hear that process is just like so cool. But we don't, I don't think we, you know, nurses, general people in the med, like we, I didn't know that like as a scientist, you first were studying the skin and then you figured, it, you know, like that's fascinating. And it's it, it, exactly that's, that's the, the lure of science yeah. that what we were trying to prevent in this. We said, well, it probably works in the cone. But in the cone, we wouldn't want to prevent it. It's probably already broken. We want to undo it. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't treat the colon with retinoic acid, you know, to undifferentiate the cell. We want to do just the opposite. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the logic. You know, we had spent uh, years and years working in the skin, funded mostly by companies who are interested in, in curing wrinkles <laughs> to learn how the differentiation process worked and then applied it to the colon to do just the opposite of what we were trying to do with the skin. That's fascinating. Now, another thing, now that you mentioned now going back to the skin, we were trying to get more collagen because old people, here I am, but mostly people who have sat in the sun all their life, all their collagen breaks down and they get wrinkles, right? And so the cosmetic company, we want, what could we do to really develop a biological that does in fact work to make the skin make new collagen? And of course, the quintessential uh, material turns out to be all transretinoic acid, you know, tretinoin, Renova, that's really what you put on 
to drive new collagen synthesis is what you're trying to accomplish to make old skin healthy. Well, guess who came to us and said, we're trying to block fibrosis. What, and you know what fibrotic reactions are, where you where your collagen production gets out of control, mm-hmm. and in the kidneys, you lose your kidney function, in the lungs, you can't breathe, in the skin, you get scleroderma, and, and some of these other keloid scars. Uh, we don't know how to block that, but we said, here's the biological process you're trying to block. The same one we were trying to goose up, you've got to interfere with. And so whether or not you're talking about reducing fibrosis or keloid scars, I'm sure you've seen your patients come in and say, how do I deal with this? And in some cases, you can deal with them surgically, but in other cases, when you do, they just come back. So you want to reduce collagen What If you didn't know the scientific pathways that led from, you know, normal collagen synthesis to too much or too little, you wouldn't have a clue as to how to attack this problem. So studying wrinkles, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it, you know, like everybody says, every doctor, every scientist wants to cure something. I wanted to cure cancer, but I'll settle for wrinkles. <laughs> and maybe we'll, maybe we'll make progress. Well, yeah, well, it sounds like starting with wrinkles can provide a really good basis for exactly. cancer exactly. that's caused by inflammation. Exactly. Which and isn't that, that all of them. <laughs> and that was funded by cosmetic so indirectly, you know, we can take the support we got from the cosmetic drive uh, the biology, the science, that somebody can say, oh, this is where this technology can be used. Like I was saying, in the colon, we wanted to do the same thing, but we wanted to do undo what we were doing. And the same in the fibrosis or 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 excess scar formation, be it surgical scars or keloid scars or anything, there is a big interest in suppressing collagen synthesis. And I said, I spent my whole career trying to make collagen. That's what, like, when you're... I once, I don't remember who I heard say it, but it made, it's, it's just true that there are no side effects to medications. There's only effects. And you just hope you get the right ones in the right spot. So if you're taking something to reduce fibroids, you can't help but for that to go all over, right? Or like not targeted. And then aren't you going to get more wrinkles? <laughs> and, and then if you don't target it properly, in, in theory, uh, if, if, you, if you were to prevent too much collagen synthesis, you wouldn't necessarily be driving it so far down that you could get wrinkled, but hypothesis-wise, that's not unreasonable to make that make that suggestion. What is going to be the effect of blocking this pathway? You know, it's like in our ulcerative colitis. We want to differentiate cells so that they make a better barrier. But people with ulcerative colitis will often have ulcers. Well, that's what the disease is. So if they got an ulcer, would they be able to heal properly? Yeah. You know, and, and that's one of the things that you have to be aware of when you go into the trial. So you tell your, your subject, 
we're going to make, we're going to, this is what this theory is. You treat with this, you get a better barrier, you reduce inflammation, and you reduce the disease. But if you don't reduce the disease, now you do develop the medicine, could your treatment interfere with the healing process? Right. Well, that's why everybody who goes into this into this research has to sign an informed consent that says, you know, you don't get a guarantee that this is going to work exactly like we're hoping. But it's this, a, but this, this enteric coated, these minerals that you found were were instrumental in creating that barrier. I mean, that doesn't sound to me. That sounds like something you might be able to buy off of us, you know, the shelf at a grocery store. You know what? It is. It is. So how you, come we you don't can buy it? You can you can you can buy them without prescription at you know any one of your uh you know any one of your natural product sales. So, so how come we don't know that this is something that is like why because the science hasn't been done. They were just you know they're marketed the marketers will say anything, but they don't have science behind it. But you have science behind it. Well, the the people that are supporting this research want be able to put on their bottle that you know this really does do what we say it does to distinguish it from all the other you know things on the shelf because to me if it's that simple and chronic inflammation comes from a leaky gut like you're you're taking care of the root cause exactly but it's but it's a slow process you know each subject in our study is six months on the study with multiple, you know, colonoscopies mm. in the study and biopsies. And then we've got to evaluate and it may not turn out as good as we think, or, you know, you may need to do a higher dose and then you may run into side effects. If you give too much calcium, you're going to get bloating and farting. If chronic inflammation is the mother of all maladies and if some basic minerals is what's going to actually like, you know, help, people have a, um, have not a leaky gut or a, um, then, and I guess I'm just curious what's your hunch because if you're not quite there yet and it seems like a simple, simple. Well, I can send you a half a dozen publications that are in high quality journals that say it's going to work, but until you do the clinical trial and enroll people who have issues and they come back with less issues, you don't know. Mm-hmm. You That's why it's so frustrating is that you can take it 20 years of research and you do your clinical trial and you can't make it work. And then you say, ah, but if I had only done this, if I had given twice as much or twice as long, it might have worked. And someone will say, but it's so expensive. You just spent two and a half million dollars in the last year doing this clinical trial. Now you want me to give you 10 million so you can do it again longer and, and with more and have more problems. You know, you, 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 you don't, everything doesn't get done because it's so expensive. So but, then what, oh, so then how come on, you, I'm sorry. Then how do you address chronic inflammation? Well, I, I think that's why, you know, our approach is good because it's an ancillary approach. It doesn't have to interfere with the drugs people are taking, which is cortisone, which is uh, mesalamine, which is a form of aspirin, you know. So 
It's just that it's not that we're not addressing it now. It's just that it doesn't work for everybody and it doesn't work permanently for anybody. So, you know, and you don't want to be on steroids any longer than right. you know, and all of that. So what, what's the root? I'm sorry. Were, were you done with that? The, no, go ahead. I got, I got a, um, I got a squirrel, very distraction um, about what is the root cause? Cause you're, you're talking about the band-aids, even, even supplementing and, and sending thing into the colon is something to not just band-aid, but uh, remedy the problem and the inflammation. What caused it in the first place? And well, why is there so much to, more today than there was 50 years ago? Well, here's my hypothesis. But, uh, our diet has become so much processed food that the first thing you process out of your diet is all the minerals. I look at it like the old caveman when he'd eat a, a, a carrot out of the ground. He'd pull the carrot up and rub it on his leg and get most of the dirt out. And that dirt had all the minerals that when we super cleaned our food and, and processed our oils and refined our carbohydrates right down to crystalline sugar, we have gotten rid of all these minerals. You can go to the USDA and you will see that the minerals that have RDAs, most groups in this in Western society are deficient. And the fact of the matter is that's only about 12 or 15 minerals, but there's probably 100. And even though we don't have an RDA for them, if they're coming in with calcium and we're not getting calcium, we're not getting them either. So then you say, well, I'll take a calcium supplement. Well, fine, that gets your calcium, but it doesn't get the other set minerals that you didn't have enough of. Uh, but it's not just minerals. You know, this you, the, high, the processed food is high fat, high sugar. Uh, the high sugar is probably worse than the high fat, actually. But I'm not a nutritionist, so don't take my word for it. Tell all your clients, if I say anything about nutrition, it's, you know, basically, basically, you know, the blind leading the blind. But it seems like what you read, and if you go to the USDA website, they'll show you the data where most people are deficient in minerals. Most people are eating too much saturated fat. Uh, and this, you know, if you're drinking sodas, that's all, that's high corn syrup fructose. You know, I mean, there is nothing in there of value. And so you're not getting the nutrients. So I tell people, again, I'm not a nutritionist, so you don't have to believe it. The diets are bad, but not only because of what we're getting. But what because we process out of our diets, you know, and, and, and that crosses from science to technology to medicine to just daily living. And you say, why is it so much worse today? When I was five or thereabouts, we didn't go to McDonald's for half our meals. We had meals at home that weren't so highly processed. Mm -hmm. We never had sodas. You know, if a, if a guest came to the house and you got a glass of Coke, that was a treat. Uh, so kids, when our kids were growing up, and my kids are 41 and 38. So, Andre, that'll put 
you have an idea where they are. Like, you even you know, know wrinkle free I am. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you look. <laughs> you look good. No doubt about it. You both look good. Even my, me. My, oh, younger, my younger cousins. Yes. Uh, but most kids, you know, this the kids that are forty today have been having a bad diet since they were born. We didn't start bad diets until we were thirty or forty. These are what I call chronic, long latency disease, whether it's cancer or vascular disease or bone loss or or anything else. The, the, the disease is progressive, but it just takes time. You're not going to destroy your vessels or your liver or your gut overnight. Phew. <laughs> That's another thing. I saw that in um, your email about um, osteoporosis and, you, you know, that was one of your interests in bone loss. And I've read a lot of things about how even the, like the medications, because it's, it's another thing. Osteoporosis is like on the rise. So many more women and men have it today. And like Floss, was it Flossmax? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the drugs that they give now, they... They might prevent the calcium loss or the bone loss, yeah. but they don't, it's not recycled, but then they also prevent the bone from yeah. recycling into the bones that are, might be dense, but they're more brittle. Exactly. Cause they are dead. Cause they, they, they prevented the calcium loss, but they killed the bone. So the bone doesn't, you know, the calcium that you've got in your bone now isn't the same calcium that'll be there forever. It cycles. Yeah. Uh, and your bone is got both bone building and bone breaking processes going on in family. And oh, the simple thing is stop bone breaking. If you want your calcium to, to not lose calcium, oh, stop bone breakdown. Well, wait a minute. If you stop bone breakdown, you stop bone building because that cycle is connected. So, so why do we put so many people on these medications then? Well, because it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> if you take the first thing we said, well, we want to prevent calcium loss, because that's what we measure. People got osteoporosis, they had calcium loss. So therefore, if we prevent calcium loss, we'll prevent osteoporosis. The only problem was we prevented calcium loss, but we didn't prevent them from breaking their bones. Oh, we did not. Trust me. And we even made, in some cases, it worked, because now there's a disease called osteonecrosis. Where you go to the dentist to get a tooth fixed, and the, and the dentist breaks the bone. Where you go in to get your hip fixed because you fell, and you can't put the bone back together. Exactly. Terrible. So, so, so have you done any work? In, well, first, back to root cause. Is that also because of a inflam like inflammatory gut? What's causing more and more people to have osteoporosis, in your hypothesis? Or... Yes, understanding. Uh, but the other thing is if you're mineral deficient and you get a calcium supplement, you'll put calcium in your bone. But guess what? Your bone is not only calcium phosphate. Your bone is made up of all the minerals. And they make a lattice that calcium alone cannot make. Mm -hmm. So if you've got all the calcium supplements in the world and your calcium level in your bone didn't fall, but you don't have strontium, your bone, your bone lattice. Say that not, again. If you don't have what? Strontium. Strontium, strontium. is another mineral. It, it's in your bone at about one to ten 
uh, element for element, molecule for element for element to calcium. And it makes the bones tough. And you know why? Because calcium is acid-soluble and strontium is not. So you eat a high-acid diet, lots of soda pop. You've got a more acidic environment. You're leaching your calcium out. Your strontium wouldn't leach out. But the calcium So if you had no strontium because you were on a mineral deficient diet all your life, your bone could be more susceptible to to loss of the critical mineral. Now, that's not proven. That's That's that's, it. I'm going back to peeing on pH strips. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another thing. You can tell pretty much how bad your diet is by how acidic your urine is. Yeah. How do you, do you, because of all your research into these areas, do you yourself kind of experiment on, with different supplements or, or do things? And, that- and Good question. I don't, my wife does, but I, I, I think even a supplement is not the same as having a healthy diet. I've learned to appreciate uh, all the good food I eat. Now that's not to say that I don't eat the bad food. I still like a steak as much as anybody, and uh, I'll eat red meat, but I do like lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grain bread, just because I like it. And if you get good food, good good apples, or nothing can beat a good apple. I don't know why people have trouble eating, you know, when they go for the potato chip when there's an apple. To me, that makes no sense. Do you know, I have a client that I help advocate for who is very diabetic. And between May of this year and now, he quit drinking soda from May of this year until now. And he lost 50 pounds. And his blood sugars, it was severely diabetic guy who's running like 300 and 400 is now in the 120s just by not drinking soda. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and getting rid of the soda, he probably substituted something healthier. So getting other good Water. things, vitamins <laughs> and minerals. So, huh. oh, one other point, getting back to putting minerals into the gut. Well, you all, you know, one of the things people talk about is the microbes in the gut. Mm-hmm. Right now, oh, the microbes are doing everything. And take that for what it's worth. I'm sure they're they're contributing. But one of the things that if you supply the minerals that our supplement is supplying, it does change the microbiology of the gut significantly. Well, that could itself contribute to a different life, you know, because the microbes produce toxins that they're toxic producing bugs. And they're mostly the anaerobes. They don't metabolize things to the end. So you end up with a lot of toxic bile acids and, and other nasty things. Well, don't laugh because we're actually running a trial right now on this. But we had a couple of patients in our first trial who we knew were, we were changing the microbes because we were measuring them. And they said, I don't know that their supplement is doing anything. But I'll tell you, my breath is bad. Is and you say, well, bad? the breath, you know, is all the microbes that are living in the gum pockets. If they're anaerobic bacteria, yeah, they're, bad. they're producing these odoriferous sulfur compounds. Yeah. 
And now you provide the mineral balance that the good bugs need, and slowly you will replace the population of microbes in your gut. And does it work in the mouth too? Because the, the minerals, the salts, get into the circulation. And so they're going to affect every orifice. And so we had enough people tell us, my breath got better, that now we're actually running a study in the dental school to look at halitosis and the same supplement. So we went from the skin huh. and collagen to the colon and leaky gut to the microbes back to the mouth for the purpose of, re- of perhaps reducing halitosis. And one person said, I didn't have bad breath, but my foot odor changed. Well, I said, well, you know, the organisms that are living in the dead skin in between your toes are producing chemicals that are odoriferous. And there's no reason to a priori believe it couldn't work. So and I said, what, what I was the combination? <laughs> I might hear bad breath. I don't care about all the different lights. I'm going to market this stuff. I mean, that is, I mean, you, you've made the world a better place. You curl, cure bad breath. <laughs> you've cleaned up the environment. <laughs> yep. you, you've, you've made, you've made more people, you've done more benefit. Than, but, and that's just the connections that you, you don't go into working on the skin thinking that 20 years from now you'll be thinking about how to cure halitosis. Do you think that it's like that for most scientists in the lab? It's it's that way for some. Others that have a plan never deviate from the plan. And some are unsuccessful because it's a bad plan. They didn't know it. Others can be highly successful. I've just been more this is the hunch that led me to this, to do this, and that, and then. But you got to listen to the data. I mean, we didn't we didn't start treating people with our mineral salt with the idea of curing halitosis. They came to us and said, "I think my breath is." And then you start thinking about, well, how could what possibly could? Well, wait a minute, you were changing the microbes in the gut. Could you also be changing them in other organs, like the mouth? And if you did... Well, the mouth is the start of the gut, right? Exactly. And the bugs that reside there in those gum pockets, and if they get to be very anaerobic, they produce chemicals that you don't want to be anywhere near. And that's bad breath. Hmm. Okay, so I it's not everybody. You know, if you got a, if you got a 12-year-old son who has never brushed his teeth, he'll have bad breath too and he'll have nothing to do with the organ. You just got to make sure he goes and brushes his teeth. That ain't easy either. Did, did you have to go through a lot of different combination of, what did you call it, mineral salts that you were giving? We had a natural product that was derived from the algae, marine algae. The marine algae did all the work. Oh, that's what you put my dad on. <laughs> they concentrated the minerals. It's the green-blue algae or the blue-green algae? Red algae, red marine. Red marine. My dad, dad swears by it. <laughs> yeah, he, he started taking it. But I say, Fred, what has it done for you? I don't know. Well, I said, why are you taking it? Well, you keep saying it's so good. Well, I, I want to be a guinea pig. That's fine. 
Yeah, that, I love to play. I do too. Me too. Yeah, Ancher and I share. We compare notes. I love to play mixology with my. I love to play with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be revealing that here, but. <laughs> no, but like I will try. But I, I, I used to listen to the experts, right? But um, and just blindly take things forever and ever but then uh, but then there were some things i took that i really noticed a difference yeah either increased energy better sleep better mood whatever so i kind of made it a rule for myself for now i mean it's been this way for many years could change tomorrow if i don't feel a difference in 30 days i'm not doing that anymore <laughs> yeah that's a good rule but with minerals they have to get in and change the whole environment our studies are 90 and 180 days Oh, okay. So we want we tell our people, you're not breath isn't going to get better tomorrow. You know, you're still going to need your lungs and grease or your 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 whatever you're taking for your bad breath. This is a slow process if you have to repopulate the environment with a different category of bugs. And the and, I, I just because you talked about the data and you got to look at the data. So I think in in nursing, there's we're very evidence based, right, which means that we look at the data and, and we do, you know, we follow certain science based on on evidence. But for me personally, I've always found like I, I can find evidence for the opposite just as easily. And, you know, there's. I have a critical eye. I look at, you know, where is the science coming from? What, you know, journal is it peer reviewed? All of this. What would you say to nurses? And especially now, because there's so much polarization. So what would you tell um, (coughs) nurses? Well, you know, what you said on is very true. There's nothing that doesn't have two sides. And, you don't list all the things that you think support your point and ignore the things that don't support your point. You should be going after those things that don't support your point, looking critically at those and say, is it just a straw man? Can I knock this argument down? And if you can, then you have to assume there's some truth in it. And that's even like, I always get in trouble with my comments because I say, even climate change isn't a given. You know, we think we know, oh, you know, doomsday is just around the corner. And I say, well, wait a minute. Why do you, because all the science points to one direction. The only science that can get published, except in the Republican Journal of Science, is stuff that says the climate is man-made and problems. But that's not the whole data. There are data points that suggest a number of things that don't fit in the current dogma. So we've so politicized that major issue that it's really difficult to have a conversation around the science of climate change. Yeah. Uh, same with COVID. I mean, good grief, you would think that we could look at all the data, but no, it's it's so political. You carve out your position, and then you go to the data. And yeah, people should be. I like what you just said because it's like you should kind of be excited to be wrong, proven wrong. 
because then then you're getting closer to the truth and and people are it's like they 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 take failure being wrong personally and so they won't even look like that and that's that's another big thing about what you're talking about the golden age it seems like people are afraid they're just so on their island (laughs) and they're not just talking it was um, so amazing to talk to you. I mean, honestly, like we might have to just have you on again because you have so much you could tell us. Yeah, that was a good 10,000 foot view. But I think some of the things like yeah. for nurses listening to this about hearing the term leaky gut in, you know, in the conventional medicine world, you'll have a lot of conventional medicine doctors roll their eyes and say there's no such thing. But I love that hearing it from an actual scientist who was in the lab studying that not only what happens, but then how to reverse it. Of course, there's a leaky gut or, uh, you know, inflammation in the colon that's causing all these downstream inflammatory chronic illnesses. That right there. If somebody came up to me and said, you're full of BS, there is no such thing. I would say, let's have a discussion because Mostly, we don't disagree on principle. We disagree on terminology. I think that translates across to care, nursing care, and being able to listen to your patients and being able to have the discussion. We we had a guest on, a young guest who had really, um, really aggressive breast cancer, and she was she was during treatment really frustrated because she would look and research what they were doing in other countries for the same kind of breast cancer. And she'd bring the studies to, to her nurses and nobody would ever stop and just say, well, I don't know, let's have a discussion or let me talk to the doctor. She said, I wish just once that somebody would have said that to me. And so to your point about being able to have these discussions, even if you come from, you know, whatever place you're coming from, I just think it, it's a beautiful way of also showing us that we just need to listen to each other. Yeah. You know? And, and and we have to just sort of swallow our egos now and again. Yeah. Lead with curiosity and humility. Rather than I'm the expert. Yeah. Yeah. Well I've been wrong so many times that that's a good thing about science. You got enough you're you got enough wrongs to not have to worry about an ego. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like working in a lab. <laughs> well you can you can come and join. We have lots. Of people. Are, are you still in the lab? Oh yeah. Yeah. As no 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 quitting for you or what's next? Well, I I tell people I'm now an emeritus professor. I get to come to work and they don't have to pay me. <laughs> That's amazing. What a career. Well, but I I do get money because I have my grants. But you know, if I didn't have my grants, then I still come to work. Do you get a lot of young folks that come in to work? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it and it's good. I tell, I tell people I probably had a hundreds, you know, college age kids come through the lab, maybe more. Everyone's a polar opposite of every other. You know, at that age, they just whatever personality they have, it's just out there. <laughs> so awesome. And they're just. Andre, we should take a field trip. That would be a cool live program, a tour of the lab. Totally. Yeah. 
Come on I, I do think it's really interesting for nurses. Like for me, just listening to you talk about what that's like, how how science is translated to evidence and practice. You know how uh, and and the the tree of like, well, I thought I was going to study skin, and then I went here, and then I went okay. here. And I the, thought I was studying skin, but I was really studying bad breath. <laughs> And wrinkles. Don't forget the wrinkles. Yeah, yeah. when when all that way. So thank you. That's science. That's science. And that that I think that matters. Like that to me, I'm so much more like, oh right, like I could go look at science. And I could have maybe a more of an open mind and look at the data on both sides and and be curious and be, you know, and have a critical, critical eye. Like we don't do that anymore. Like, no, and, and you're right. That translates into practice. You practice the same way, or you should. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. you're, if your clients get nothing out of this podcast, maybe you'll just yes. open them to the idea that that the truth is hard to come by. Yeah. And, you know, all these, before we finish, you know, everybody's got yard signs. Whoever thought in the day of the internet that yard signs would make such a comeback? <laughs> but... Every every other house says we believe in science, and I always say if you knew how messy science was, you'd probably take that sign away. <laughs> yeah, and they don't even know what they're saying they believe in. I believe in science. Well, <laughs> yeah, but does that mean yeah? Like, wh- what does that mean? Does that mean you believe that people can be wrong and then people can be right and try to prove it? Like, what do you I, mean? <laughs> I believe in science. You don't agree with me that you're anti-science, <laughs> and they think. Well, here's the answer. We, we saw, we settled that. They don't know what they're talking about. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you, and so nice. Oh, my to pleasure. You. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I yeah. like talking with both of you. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to have you back, or maybe come to you about taking one of those topics and yeah, Do zeroing that. in on it. Yeah. Do that. Okay. Yeah, but this this is fun. We will. We, will. we didn't even get to talk about the liver. Too bad. Well, I know. Next time, the liver. I'm yeah, that is too bad. <laughs> oh, because every you know that's that's the malady of the new millennium. I, I, the liver. Oh yeah. Oh god. Alcoholic liver disease. Oh, we have to we have to do another podcast. We can't. We can't. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll Thank talk you. about well alcoholic liver disease next time. You guys. That's a wrap. What a great podcast. If you're a nurse, head over to www.rnegade.pro. Follow the prompts, do the activity, fill out the evaluation for the podcast that you just listened to and get a CE. Could we just make CE by podcast the norm? Please. Bye.